Section six of Tales of Unrest. Chapter six of Corain, a memory. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ju. Tales of Unrest by Joseph Conrad. Corain, a memory. Chapter six. Hollis looked smiling into the box. He had lately made a dash home through the canal. He had been away six months, and only joined us again just in time for this last trip. We had never seen the box before. His hands hovered above it, and he talked to us ironically, but his face became as grave as though he were pronouncing a powerful incantation over the things inside. Every one of us he said, with pauses that somehow were more offensive than his words. Every one of us, you'll admit, has been haunted by some woman, and, as to friends, dropped by the way. Well, ask yourselves. He paused. Karain stared. A deep rumble was heard high up under the deck. Jackson spoke seriously. Don't be so beastly cynical. Ah, you are without guile, said Hollis sadly. You will learn. Meantime, this Malay has been our friend. He repeated several times thoughtfully, Friend, Malay, friend, Malay, as though weighing the words against one another, then went on more briskly, A good fellow, a gentleman in his way. We can't, so to speak, turn our backs on his confidence and belief in us. Those Malays are easily impressed, all nerves, you know. Therefore, he turned to me sharply. You know him best, he said in a practical tone. Do you think he is fanatical? I mean, very strict in his faith? I stammered in profound amazement that I, I did not think so. It's on account of its being a likeness, an engraved image, muttered Hollis enigmatically, turning to the box. He plunged his fingers into it. Karain's lips were parted, and his eyes shone. We looked into the box. There were there a couple of reels of cotton, a packet of needles, a bit of silk ribbon, dark blue, a cabinet photograph, at which Hollis stole a glance before laying it on the table face downwards, a girl's portrait I could see. There were, amongst a lot of various small objects, a bunch of flowers, a narrow white glove with many buttons, a slim packet of letters carefully tied up, amulets of white men, charms and talismans, charms that keep them straight, that drive them crooked, that have the power to make a young man sigh, an old man smile, potent things that procure dreams of joy, thoughts of regret, that soften hard hearts, and can temper a soft one to the hardness of steel, gifts of heaven, things of earth. Hollis rummaged in the box. And it seemed to me, during that moment of waiting, that the cabin of the schooner was becoming filled with a stir invisible and living, as of subtle breaths. 
all the ghosts driven out of the unbelieving West by men who pretend to be wise and alone and at peace, all the homeless ghosts of an unbelieving world, appeared suddenly round the figure of Hollis, bending over the box. All the exiled and charming shades of loved women, all the beautiful and tender ghosts of ideals, remembered, forgotten, cherished, execrated, all the cast-out and reproachful ghosts of friends admired, trusted, traduced, betrayed, left dead by the way, they all seemed to come from the inhospitable regions of the earth to crowd into the gloomy cabin, as though it had been a refuge, and, in all the unbelieving world, the only place of avenging belief. It lasted a second. All disappeared. Hollis was facing us alone with something small that glittered between his fingers. It looked like a coin. Ah, here it is, he said. He held it up. It was a sixpence. A jubilee sixpence. It was gilt. It had a hole punched near the rim. Hollis looked towards Karain. A charm for our friend, he said to us. The thing itself is of great power. Money, you know. And his imagination is struck. A loyal vagabond. If only his puritanism doesn't shy at a likeness. We said nothing. We did not know whether to be scandalised, amused or relieved. Hollis advanced towards Karain, who stood up as if startled, and then, holding the coin up, spoke in Malay. This is the image of the great queen, and the most powerful thing the white men know, he said solemnly. Karain covered the handle of his kris in sign of respect, and stared at the crowned head. The invincible, the pious, he muttered. She is more powerful than Suleiman the wise, who commanded the genie, as you know, said Hollis gravely. I shall give this to you. He held the sixpence in the palm of his hand, and looking at it thoughtfully, spoke to us in English. She commands a spirit too, the spirit of her nation, a masterful, conscientious, unscrupulous, unconquerable devil that does a lot of good, incidentally, a lot of good, at times, and wouldn't stand any fuss from the best ghost out for such a little thing as our friend shot. Don't look thunderstruck, you fellows. Help me to make him believe. Everything's in that. His people will be shocked, I murmured. Hollis looked fixedly at Karain, who was the incarnation of the very essence of still excitement. He stood rigid, with head thrown back. His eyes rolled wildly, flashing. The dilated nostrils quivered. Hang it all, said Hollis at last. He's a good fellow. I'll give him something that I shall really miss. He took the ribbon out of the box, smiled at it scornfully, then, with a pair of scissors, cut out a piece from the palm of the glove. I shall make him a thing like those Italian peasants wear, you know. He sewed the coin in the delicate leather, sewed the leather to the ribbon, tied the ends together. He worked with haste. Karain watched his fingers all the time. Now then, he said, then stepped up to Karain. They looked close into one another's eyes. Those of Karain stared in a lost glance, but Hollis's seemed to grow darker and looked out masterful and compelling. They were in violent contrast together, one motionless and the colour of bronze, 
the other dazzling white and lifting his arms, where the powerful muscles rolled slightly under a skin that gleamed like satin. Jackson moved near with the air of a man closing up to a chum in a tight place. I said impressively, pointing to Hollis, He is young, but he is wise. Believe him. Karain bent his head. Hollis threw lightly over it the dark blue ribbon and stepped back. Forget and be at peace, I cried. Karain seemed to wake up from a dream. He said, Ha! shook himself as if throwing off a burden. He looked round with assurance. Someone on deck dragged off the skylight cover and a flood of light fell into the cabin. It was morning already. Time to go on deck, said Jackson. Hollis put on a coat and we went up, Karain leading. The sun had risen beyond the hills, and their long shadows stretched far over the bay in the pearly light. The air was clear, stainless, and cool. I pointed at the curved line of yellow sands. He's not there, I said emphatically to Karain. He waits no more. He has departed forever. A shaft of bright hot rays darted into the bay between the summits of two hills, and the water all round broke out as if by magic into a dazzling sparkle. No, he is not there waiting, said Karain, after a long look over the beach. I do not hear him, he went on slowly. No. He turned to us. He has departed again. Forever, he cried. We assented vigorously, repeatedly, and without compunction. The great thing was to impress him powerfully, to suggest absolute safety, the end of all trouble. We did our best, and I hope we affirmed our faith in the power of Hollis's charm efficiently enough to put the matter beyond the shadow of a doubt. Our voices rang around him joyously in the still air, and above his head the sky, pellucid, pure, stainless, arched its tender blue from shore to shore and over the bay, as if to envelop the water, the earth, and the man in the caress of its light. The anchor was up, the sails hung still, and half a dozen big boats were seen sweeping over the bay to give us a tow out. The paddlers in the first one that came alongside lifted their heads and saw their ruler standing amongst us. A low murmur of surprise arose, then a shout of greeting. He left us, and seemed straightway to step into the glorious splendour of his stage, to wrap himself in the illusion of unavoidable success. For a moment he stood erect, one foot over the gangway, one hand on the hilt of his crease in a martial pose, and, relieved from the fear of outer darkness, he held his head high. He swept a serene look over his conquered foothold on the earth. The boats far off took up the cry of greeting, a great clamour rolled on the water, the hills echoed it, and seemed to toss back at him the words invoking long life and victories. He descended into a canoe, and as soon as he was clear of the side we gave him three cheers. They sounded faint and orderly after the wild tumult of his loyal subjects, but it was the best we could do. He stood up in the boat, lifted up both his arms, then pointed to the infallible charm. We cheered again, and the Malays in the boat stared, very much puzzled and impressed. I wondered what they thought, what he thought, 
what the reader thinks. We towed out slowly. We saw him land and watch us from the beach. A figure approached him humbly but openly, not at all like a ghost with a grievance. We could see other men running towards him. Perhaps he had been missed. At any rate there was a great stir. A group formed itself rapidly near him, and he walked along the sands, followed by a growing cortege, and kept nearly abreast of the schooner. With our glasses we could see the blue ribbon on his neck, and a patch of white on his brown chest. The bay was waking up. The smokes of morning fires stood in faint spirals higher than the heads of palms. People moved between the houses. A herd of buffaloes galloped clumsily across a green slope. The slender figures of boys brandishing sticks appeared black and leaping in the long grass. A coloured line of women, with water bamboos on their heads, moved swaying through a thin grove of fruit trees. Karain stopped in the midst of his men and waved his hand. Then, detaching himself from the splendid group, walked alone to the water's edge and waved his hand again. The schooner passed out to sea between the steep headlands that shut in the bay, and at the same instant, Karain passed out of our life forever. But the memory remains. Some years afterwards I met Jackson in the Strand. He was magnificent as ever. His head was high above the crowd, his beard was gold, his face red, his eyes blue. He had a wide-brimmed grey hat and no collar or waistcoat. He was inspiring. He had just come home, had landed that very day. Our meeting caused an eddy in the current of humanity. Hurried people would run against us, then walk round us, and turn back to look at that giant. We tried to compress seven years of life into seven exclamations, then, suddenly appeased, walked sedately along, giving one another the news of yesterday. Jackson gazed about him like a man who looks for landmarks, then stopped before Bland's window. He always had a passion for firearms. So he stopped short and contemplated the row of weapons, perfect and severe, drawn up in a line behind the black-framed panes. I stood by his side. Suddenly he said, Do you remember Karain? I nodded. The sight of all this made me think of him, he went on, with his face near the glass. And I could see another man, powerful and bearded, peering at him intently from amongst the dark and polished tubes that can cure so many illusions. Yes, it made me think of him, he continued slowly. I saw a paper this morning. They are fighting over there again. He's sure to be in it. He will make it hot for the caballeros. Well, good luck to him, poor devil. He was perfectly stunning. We walked on. I wonder whether the charm worked. You remember Hollis's charm, of course. If it did, never was a sixpence wasted to better advantage. Poor devil, I wonder whether he got rid of that friend of his. Hope so. Do you know, I sometimes think that... I stood still and looked at him. Yes, I mean, whether the thing was so... You know, whether it really happened to him. What do you think? "'My dear chap,' I cried, "'you've been too long away from home. "'What a question to ask. "'Only look at all this.' "'A watery gleam of sunshine 
flashed from the west, and went out between two long lines of walls, and then the broken confusion of roofs, the chimney stacks, the gold letters sprawling over the fronts of houses, the sombre polish of windows stood resigned and sullen under the falling gloom, the whole length of the street, deep as a well and narrow like a corridor, was full of a sombre and ceaseless stir. Our ears were filled by a headlong shuffle and beat of rapid footsteps, and by an underlying rumour, a rumour vast, faint, pulsating, as of panting breaths, of beating hearts, of gasping voices. Innumerable eyes stared straight in front, feet moved hurriedly, blank faces flowed, arms swung. Over all, a narrow, ragged strip of smoky sky wound about between the high roofs, extended and motionless, like a soiled streamer flying above the rout of a mob. Yes, said Jackson, meditatively. The big wheels of hansoms turned slowly along the edge of sidewalks. A pale-faced youth strolled, overcome by weariness, by the side of his stick and with the tails of his overcoat flapping gently near his heels. Horses stepped gingerly on the greasy pavement, tossing their heads. Two young girls passed by, talking vivaciously and with shining eyes. A fine old fellow strutted, red-faced, stroking a white moustache, and a line of yellow boards with blue letters on them approached us slowly, tossing on high behind one another, like some queer wreckage adrift upon a river of hats. "'Yes,' repeated Jackson. His clear blue eyes looked about contemptuous, amused and hard, like the eyes of a boy. A clumsy string of red, yellow and green omnibuses rolled swaying, monstrous and gaudy. Two shabby children ran across the road. A knot of dirty men with red neckerchiefs round their bare throats lurched along, discussing filthily. A ragged old man with a face of despair yelled horribly in the mud the name of a paper. While far off, amongst the tossing heads of horses, the dull flash of harnesses, the jumble of lustrous panels and roofs of carriages, we could see a policeman, helmeted and dark, stretching out a rigid arm at the crossing of the streets. "'Yes, I see it,' said Jackson slowly. "'It is there. It pants.' It runs, it rolls, it is strong and alive, it would smash you if you didn't look out. But I'll be hanged if it is yet as real to me as, as the other thing. Say, Karain's story. I think that decidedly he had been too long away from home. End of story.